यू आर लिसनिंग टू अमिंट प्रोडक्शन प्रॉट यू बाय एच टी स्मार्ट कास्ट द मार्च ऑफ नाइनटीन नाइनटी वन वॉज अ टर्निंग पॉइंट इन The Chandrasekhar government presented an interim budget on the 4th of March. Finance Minister Yashwant Sinha spoke in the budget speech of a fragile economic situation and a macroeconomic crisis, but could not take corrective steps required because the government was politically too weak. By May 1991, international rating agencies had downgraded India to below investment grade. India was on the brink of default on its international obligations, something that had never happened before. Mr Sinha authorized the State Bank of India to sell 20 tons of gold from the government of india's stock to the union bank of switzerland he also authorized negotiations for pledging 47 tons of gold from the reserves as collateral for a loan of 600 million dollars from the bank of japan and the bank of england they insisted that the gold should be physically shipped to their vaults in london on 21st june 1991 a new government headed by pv narasimharao was sworn in It brought the crisis under control and reversed the economic policies of interventionism India had stuck to in the first four decades post-independence. These decisions changed the Indian economy unimaginably. Welcome to India's Reform Story. I'm your host Pooja Mehra. I'm an independent journalist and podcaster, and the author of The Lost Decade, 2008 to 18: How India's Growth Story Devolved into Growth Without a Story. India's Reform Story is a seven-part podcast. In a series of seven conversations with economists, policymakers and commentators, I will unpack the story behind India's reforms and find out what went on behind the scenes and how successive prime ministers from Atal Bihari Vajpayee to Narendra Modi have taken these reforms forward. In India, resistance to sound economics comes from all shades of the ideological spectrum. The left and the right usually obstruct reforms taking very similar positions. Dr Vijay Kelkar was finance secretary and earlier the petroleum secretary in Mr Vajpayee's governments. He was also the chairman of the 13th finance commission. In his first tenure Prime Minister Modi consulted Dr Kelkar on a number of occasions on policy matters including the GST. I asked Dr Kelkar about Mr Vajpayee's knack of overcoming resistance to reforms. Interestingly Dr Kelkar makes a point that is very different from the analysis offered by the other guest speakers on this podcast series. Dr Kelkar told me that Mr Vajpayee's reforms were different than the Dr Manmohan Singh PV Narsimharao deals because they were not crisis driven they were consensus driven and that's an alternative way of doing reforms he made contribution towards structural reforms macroeconomic reforms macroeconomic reforms institutional reforms and microeconomic reforms in other words the gamut of changes we introduced into within his period as prime minister remember he came the two innings of prime ministers so i'm combining the two innings of prime minister together so his contribution has been a very very wide ranging so let me start with kind of what were the sort of uh, institutional reforms he made to start with i think he really gave genuine uh, contribution towards now what we call cooperative federalism i mean the way he resurrected uh, the national development council the way he engaged with the chief ministers and one of the incredible action he took in terms of if you remember when that government came to power this is india the global and domestic interest interest rates had declined sharply compared to earlier period so all the state governments were burdened with the tax borrowings i mean the, the borrowings are very high interest rates which the contract because our contracts are is a fixed 
fixed interest contracts. So he could see there is an opportunity to reduce their, the interest rate uh, burden. So if you remember, the government of India did this exchange, swapping of high interest, low interest rate swap. And the entire fiscal cost, which implied, was taken by central. So this was, to my mind, a sort of very excellent example. Dan Suomoto didn't, he did it because he felt that this is how he strengthened the, similarly he strengthened the, in my view, Niti, no, no, the planning commission by getting Mr. Kesipant to chair it. And he brought in a lot of sort of changes in the way the NDC functions. And so in the economic management, there was a genuine attempt to sort of strengthen cooperative realism. Other, uh, the institutions which he created for better management of Indian economy, I, I mentioned two. One is Competition Commission. If you remember, Competition Commission came during his regime. He first requested Mr. Raghavan to chair a committee with a Sudhir Mujal member when Sinaji was a finance minister. Based on that, and Constitution Commission, and, and Competition Commission, I think, in my view, major institutional innovation for promote competition in the economy. Similarly, the National Statistical Commission. He realized that without knowledge, without data, you really can't run. So that was also came about. So after my view, like Nehru, Nehru's contribution was like the institution, something similar happened in short span, much smaller span, in terms of economic management I'm talking about in this time. So the institutional innovation introduced, and of course, the macroeconomic reforms were really stunning. If you take the creation of fiscal responsible budget management, FRBM, idea that government ties its hand on fiscals, it was very unusual for any democratic governments. We initiated it because we realized that that's very important for India. Or second major macroeconomic reforms were essentially tax reforms, both directly indirect taxes, which was essentially dramatically changed the what I call the cost of risk capital, and that really gave the investment boom in the intervening years. And other macro reform, which is not usually appreciated, is reducing interest rates, real interest rates, by cutting down, by linking small-scale savings interest rate, NSS, to market. With that, as other way, used to give the flow to all the interest rates stuck in India. So that he cut out. So that was the basis for an investment boom, which came about. Major macro reforms, and third is the what I call massive economic reform, which are the sectoral reform. The most classic were telecom sector and road sector, and two of the most important ones, I would argue. And then, of course, number of other reforms related to micro economics, like uh, the, for instance, in oil industry, removing the other the price controls, this kind of thing, which are really what I call micro reforms. So he gave. The everywhere, all the areas of economic policies into the reform, which essentially was to promote competition, reduce the cost of capital, and unleash the, the animal spirits of investors. And that laid the basis for the investment and boom and boom in Indian growth rates, and what I call became the golden age of growth. The other important concept he introduced, which is people don't really appreciate and he was the one who also emphasized that. He also, I think, helped us change the labor of our distributive uh, justice by calling his the policy of Antodia. In other words, he said, look, I'm just going to focus the lowest, lowest uh, run 
And in my view, it's quite reminiscent to me. Of, you must have seen the studies in Delhi School, John Rawls' theory of justice. And this is that that's the aspect that the fair country fairness is how you deal with the lowest rung of people and how to lift them up. So that's almost Rawlsian. So it's a different view than I think what others should take in my view, which he explicitly mentioned. So uh, these are the kind of, I think, the important ways he changed, way managing our economy and uh, unleashing the forces in the Indian economy. Dr. Kilka, what you're saying is very important because this shows that the reforms introduced by Mr. Vajpayee were sort of very rounded and multidimensional. And whereas there is this notion that India reforms only in times of crisis, you're saying that Mr. Vajpayee's government introduced reforms without there being crisis and because it was uh, determined to do two things. One, expand the market economy, allow market economy to function and the various institutional and other changes required for that. And two, uh, to make sure that those who cannot participate directly in the market, there was some redistributional scope for them. Is that, am I correct in understanding what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. After nuclear our nuclear testing, and when we declare India the nuclear power, India became sort of a pariah amongst the powers of the world economy in the world. And we were facing sanctions. So we were revising how do we sort of meet our challenges. So one thing we remember that in 1991 crisis, Japan was very forthcoming in supporting India. So Prime Minister and Prime Minister asked me to go to Japan. So I went to Japan. I met that time was what was called as Mr. Yen Sakagibara, was the finance secretary of Japanese finance secretary. I met foreign office and, and they were very polite, but they were quite firm. Because for them, nuclear issues is extremely emotional because they were a victim of a nuclear attack. I said, this is the first time Mr. Bajpayee is trying to introduce what I call not crisis-driven reforms, but the consensus-driven reforms. So a completely new model is introducing, which is not crisis-based, but consensus based and and I also mentioned I thought I didn't realize I also write in arguing that argument. I also mentioned to my Japanese host that if we want stability in India, it has to be based on tripod, stable tripod. Stable tripod means India, China, and Japan. He said if one of the legs is weak, it'll become unstable. So I thought I'll appeal to them politically also, but I, I must confess the nuclear which was too sensitive for them to make any. But we are upset. The reason I remember that because that this time I argued with my host that this time around our approach of what Mr. Bachwa is trying to do is consensus-driven reform, not crisis-driven reform. We have a, so there is a greater commitment, internal commitment towards reforms, not coming from anywhere else. Do you think that consensus still holds? Are we seeing for ideological or other reasons uh, such as newer realities? Do, uh, that consensus weakening, think, do you see it weakening? No, the, what is weakening is a willingness to uh, create consensus, to reach out the genuine uh, consultation, in reaching out the way he reached out all the sections of his coalition partners. And even his, he was very, very uh, collegiate in running the government. I mean, you had the complete freedom once the policy decided for ministers like uh, General Khanduri in uh, surface transport or Arun Shori in the area of privatization, or of course, Mr. Sina as the finance minister, Mr. Jaitley as corporate affairs and law minister, Jaswin Singh Ji, defense, Jaswin Singh Ji, foreign affairs, George Fernandez in defense. I mean, I can keep on going. So he's, 
system also was collegiate. So that that promoted consensus also within the different parties and also reached out to everybody. And remember, he had problems internally with uh, Swadhi Jagrat Manch. He tried to reach out, but he went, didn't want to compromise more than what is required. Ultimately, he said, I will go ahead with the reforms. I was just going to come to that because we find, you know, I for preparation for this project, I was listening to a lot of speeches that he gave, especially on globalization and trade and how he spoke to industry on industry platforms saying that, uh, you know, they cannot expect protectionism, whereas he was concerned that they should not get hurt by the trade related measures that his government reforms that his uh, government was uh, introducing, but he kept telling them that you know they could not beyond the point become over dependent on protectionism. Uh, but we see now that there is a reversal of you know that thinking, whether for ideological reasons or for whatever reasons. And this is some bit also a global phenomenon. The global mood also has changed on globalization, etc. There, you know, how do you analyze the current situation, especially because you spoke of the Swadeshi Jagran Manch? Because in India, the Swadeshi Jagran Manch, the left, uh, large sections of the Congress Party, they all seem to have very similar views on these issues. I remember the Congress Party has a number. SJM is still very protectionist. And it, it was similar with, um, with Bajpayee. Bajpayee had to fight them politically with, uh, with them on the line. And he won his line. So he, when we when we speak of a reformist approach, what is the lessons to be taken from Mr. Vajpayee's tenure in handling these issues? Because we are not able to do it anymore, it looks like. I think he connected, linked uh, international politics and domestic economy much better. If you want to be a great economic power, economic power in the world, you can't be protectionist. You have to engage with the world. You can't... Traffic has to two-way with the world. And he understood the link between... Uh, being a great, if you want to become great political power, you have to become great economic power. And without trade and investment, you're going to do that. And which has to be both ways. So he saw the link between politics and economy much better than many of us. Uh, could you say something about the taxation reforms by successive governments, including GST and, you know, all, all the other reforms? You see, uh, if you remember, when I came back from Washington, Justin Singh was a prime minister, I mean, a finance minister. And he asked me what you want me we want me to do. I said, look, I'll be very happy to work if you work on both direct and indirect tax reforms. And we had a terrific, uh, very independent experts group. And we proposed uh, essentially two ideas is reduce the overall uh, tax rate and eliminate the sectional base, the sort of uh, concessions or uh, tax uh, relief. So that was a tra- trade-off. You reduce the rate overall. But then you get rid of... Uh, and the argument was very simple. The reason it went with through with the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister, I said, look, this is the way you're going to reduce the cost of risk capital to our industry. If you want to increase investments, you must reduce the cost of capital. We already done through interest rates, debt capital. But the real cost is, is the people take risks. Risk capital is too high. We calculate and show to them, it is a 45% of the highest in the world. The uh, incidence on... Um, Almost reaching 50%. No one's going to invest. It's 50% tax on the risk taking. So he accepted that and uh, it went through. So in, in that tax, and plus we did a lot of administrative reform. This is a reduced, it was three point mantra for diet tax reform simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. So get rid of this annexures and everything. 
and that appealed to both the prime minister and the prime minister just for me he was very much liked it i remember he was really he said yeah yeah aisa hi karke hona chahiye logo ko bahut pareshani hoti hai so he was quite keen on this so that tax reform was based on this two principles simplicity simplicity and it was a cost of risk capital and in that tax reform was we were just lucky what happened was you know when we got a constitution puja our constitution makers gave rights to tax agriculture to states and industry to state government they didn't mention them as services what they say what was not mentioned is distributive powers came with the center so central government service sector was expanding so tax base was expanding but we had no clarity so just once in just five minutes i said look with this is not correct let's get constitutional amendment and get this right for center to tax services sector so there is no we do i don't want to by default so introduce this that time uh, our committee was going on and arvind modi is uh, was working with us at time and ajay shah and suddenly thought occurred to us oh my god if is going to come in why not be make it as a combined taxes together and this is a bargain we can make to the state governments with the state and we are going to give you new areas of taxation because till then service only tax by india for central government So I think it is a good gesture of uh, cooperative federalism, which will say that the tax base for you and Central will be same. In exchange, let's harmonise it by a single rate called GST. So it was a what we call grand bargain with the states that state got some much enlarged power to the state. Through so this, state has access. State will also get access to the tax base from GST imports. Till then. The, the countervailing duty was only given to center. So I said, "You also getting this, but a bargain would be we come together, share equal tax base, and have single. And that's how India becomes single market." And we also argued because of our taxing structure, two things happening: India in India manufacturing sector is overtaxed, and exports are overtaxed because there's no reimbursement of taxes. The reason we are not exporting enough not because we are stupid. Our fiscal policy was designed against exports. Manufacturing sector was slow because it was entire tax burden went on manufacturing sector. So naturally, you would as economists would have argued correctly that people would shift to non-tax sector, which that's why services were booming and the manufacturing sector was declining. So GST basically will completely remove this bias against the manufacturing sector. It will be India will become single market. And exports will move, and naturally, Peter, Mr. Pai, and Jaswant Singh. The idea of one tax, one nation, common market, which has not happened so far. If that's happened, it also appealed to their those patriotic instincts also. That this is the right thing to do. And before the government fell, I mean, but to credit to Chidambaram, which I still continued for four months to work with advisor. I met Chidambaram, made a presentation. He also came on board. If you remember, in that budget announced. 2010 GST will be introduced. So there was a buy-in by national parties, not the local parties as much. National parties understood, as a representative of national bourgeoisie, they understood the interest of bourgeoisie uh, in this, and also interest for the country and interest of everybody, especially import, export. I am more interested. Personally, interest was we were just not exporting enough manufacturers, and I realized it is a structural problem, not because of is our tax structure. So that was the, the origin of GST, and it took long time. But then, we uh, have to, in all fairness, all federal countries have taken a decade to implement GST. 
Australia, Brazil, EU, Canada. So India taking one ticket is not that out of sort of uh, line of the other country. We could have done faster, but it's not been done also. So, but mistake was done by not doing it simplified as we were proposing. But that will come later on. That that was not Mr. Well, problem. But if Hal Bashmai would have continued, I assure you, would have got absolute model GST. He would have negotiated personally with the chief minister. Are you saying, in other words, that Mr. Modi failed to do that? No, because he didn't persuade the chief ministers. Lost JTV. opportunity. Also, in JTV was a beautiful negotiator, but he was still a finance minister. To persuade chief ministers, prime minister, had he put his weight behind JTV, I think he would have found a different GST. Right. Do you have any idea of why Mr. Modi did not himself get involved with this negotiation with the state I chief never, minister? You know, I met only a couple of times on this issue. And, but I really don't know. I don't have an answer to that. He listened to, to all fairness. He gave me a full hearing. I explained to him and I, my simple formula. And once it was a meeting in front of former uh, the Deputy Prime Minister of uh, Singapore, if you remember, he had organized a meeting where uh, Nidhya invited this former Deputy Prime Minister of Singapore to give a lecture to entire cabinet, including the Prime Minister. After that, and that he asked me to comment on that. So everybody was sitting there. Same point I made on single rate. I said one country, one uh, tax, of one rate. And the Deputy Prime Minister of Singapore publicly endorsed. He said, "This is the right thing to do. This is what we are doing." So, I mean, I had an opportunity twice to talk to him, but I don't. I can explain why he didn't put his weight behind Jaitley. One reform where he did put his weight behind Mr. Jaitley is, you know, the uh, rollout of the uh, monetary policy framework designed by the Dr. Ujit Patel Committee. Many people don't understand why this is a very important reform. Uh, you've written in your book, it's the most important milestone in the RBI's history. Uh, could you please explain why this is important? Also, because it has links with fiscal policy and, you know, your own FRBM no, I reform. Think, uh, Importantly, the first is the clear separation of uh, accountability and responsibility of uh, monetary policy tools and uh, fiscal policy tools. And second, make it rule based. And third, it is more, uh, it's not still that reform not gone far, far enough, but I, I think over time will go further because earlier proposal was more balanced voting power in NPC. But now it's not yet happened, but it will happen in the future. But it's given predictability of the system and what the investors or any economic agents like wanted predictability of and, and remember you were you were taught at Delhi school the critical insight of Professor Tinbergen of assignment problem one target one instrument don't put too many objectives on one policy instrument and to give that clarity and I think given our stage of development I thought very important reform. You've also written in your book that intensification of this strategy behind the reforms until now can no longer be relied upon for delivering growth and development and fresh thinking is needed. Could you say what sort of direction we need to take now? I think uh, two, or, two, or, two or three areas. One is the institution building. Institutions we have neglected. The, ultimately, decisions get negotiated through the institutions. And we did nothing on strengthening institutions. And corollary of that, we did very little in capacity building. I'm currently reading a, reading a book on China. And in China, one of the important things that I was not aware, Deng Xiaoping did a lot of emphasis on strengthening the 
state capacity. Uh, that I think we have not we have neglected state capacity. And third, I think uh, more of the same will not work. Is a very great challenge of urbanization. The third tier, strengthening of third tier, because most of the local public goods, local public goods are going to be important. That's where I think uh, we are not thought through in our first 91 reforms or later on reforms or even so far. Is a new frontier is coming up that revolves around uh, capacity in institutions. In the third tier. So earlier there was intellectual consensus, but the constraint was the politics. As of today, do you see intellectual consensus or even any intellectual inputs available for the politics to come around to it? Or both are constraints? No, I don't think there's still intellectual consensus. There's turmoil. Is that why we are seeing reforms slowing yeah, down? I mean, that's because this data, because reforms are not taking place. I'm just conjecturing that that must be the reason. Because... Uh, in some respect, I correct me if I'm wrong, our book must have been one of the first few ones which brings down this new paradigm requirement. So I'm sure there'll be many more. And I think especially this very brutal attack of India by China is going to awaken us. Maybe that will speed up the building of consensus because the Chinese challenge has to be responded very, very thoughtfully and energetically. So that we may... 91 crisis, uh, like this also crisis, a different kind, but very important challenge in their health. Dr. Kilgo made two very interesting points. One, he seems to suggest that Mr. Modi has not been as successful as Mr. Vajpayee in building consensus and taking everyone along on the path of reforms. It is not enough to roll out reforms. For reforms to be durable, everyone must feel reassured their concerns were taken on board and decisions were not unilaterally forced upon them by a brute majority. Second, listening to a wider range of people only helps decision-makers be better informed and the quality of decisions improves. Mr. Vajpayee knew the value in this. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.